just before Easter, and my parents came up from all the way from sunny Lowestoft uh, to visit me here in Sheffield. And uh, I took a day off work, and we did the classic parent thing, go for a walk in the Peak District. So we went over to Derwent Reservoir. And we did the walk where you go up to the side on the right, you try and get as high as you can, and you look nice views back over the reservoir. Halfway up, my parents huffing and puffing. Um, they're getting a bit old these days. They had their little walking sticks, though, so that helped them out, apparently. And then when we got to the top, beautiful views, we had lunch, and we walked down with nice views over Banford, and then followed the road all the way back down. And everything was going fine, it was very lovely, very enjoyable. And then we got to the little bit where you walk on the path just in front of the reservoir and the dam, just in front of the dam. And I noticed on the floor um, were frogs, dead frogs. I don't know if you've ever walked around there, but um, I was counting them. I thought I'd count them. They were, they were kind of squidged, sort of splattered into the road. Um, and I looked at my mum and my dad, and I said, this is a little bit odd, isn't it? Um, and we thought, well, this is a nice family activity. Why don't we count the dead frogs? Um, so by the time I'd got to 100 dead frogs, I was kind of chuckling away. And my mum, a person of much more compassion, even she was laughing. Um, don't call the RSPCA. I, don't, I didn't kill any of the frogs myself. But we were just thinking, isn't this odd all these dead frogs on a road that let's be honest is not that busy and it's not like there's endless trucks driving along trying to take out all the frogs and it was even more curious that when we got to the end of that little bit road on the sign on the gate it said road closed 185 dead frogs I counted and me and my mum and my dad we were like what is going on what is going on and we saw just one Live frog. He looked very sad. Bless him. Um, but it reminded me of um, Daniel. And we had all that stuff read from two chronicles, and you may have been thinking, why are we reading all this? Um, but if you like, Daniel and his friends are like the one live frog. Uh, because all around them, all they can see is death. God's people killed, decimated by Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Daniel and his friends must have thought, what is going on? Has, has God lost control? And it makes me think it's just like our world, isn't it? Our world's just like this. And so many strange things happening. It feels like God has lost his grip. We look around the world at the political upheaval in countries like Libya and Egypt, Syria and Yemen. It's not just those things that make us think our world is out of control. We look to natural disasters, don't we? And we think of New Zealand, and even more recently, Japan. And it makes us ask the question, has God lost his grip? But there's closer to home, isn't there, with personal tragedies. Um, People with cancer. Relatives with Alzheimer's. And just on the news this week, we saw the case of Uh, the carers who abuse the people under their care. And it all makes us ask this question, has God lost control? And then we think of God's people around the world, and routinely Christians are persecuted day after day, aren't they? In places like North Korea, Pakistan, Nigeria, Egypt. And then on our television screens most days, Christians are mocked, aren't they? And treated as idiots. Daniel's world is very similar to our world, isn't it? It seems out of control. Has God lost his grip? Uh, So often I just sort of look at the world and I think there's no rhyme nor reason as to what's going on. Uh, Just like the frogs at Dermot Water, if anyone can tell me why 185 dead frogs are there, I'd love to know. But what is going on? Who 
is in charge of our world. Well, why don't I pray uh, that God would reveal himself to us this evening. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look at our world and it makes us ask many questions. Father, help us to see tonight who is in charge that we might trust him. Amen. Great, well, who's in charge? Who's in charge of our world? If you'd asked anybody at the time of Daniel, they'd have all said the same person. They would have said, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He was the boss. He was the king. He was the big daddy, if you like. No one could touch him. Now, we're going to get to spend quite a bit of time with Nebuchadnezzar over the next few weeks. So we're going to call him Neb, because we're going to kind of come become his friends. Um, so from now on, Neb, that's Nebuchadnezzar. Um, but the thing with Nebuchadnezzar was no one could match his power. Um, no one could match his authority. He had an incredible palace, a massive army, and some pretty fine hanging gardens, so we're led to believe. And he could do whatever he wanted, when he wanted, how he wanted, and with whom he wanted. And for all the world, it appeared that King Nebuchadnezzar, Neb himself, was the boss, the daddy, the king. And so as we go through Daniel 1, we're going to look at appearances. Look at the way the world appears. The way that Daniel's world appeared. Indeed, the way that our world so often appears. And so let's look together, through Daniel 1, at the way the world appears. Who is the one with the power in our world? Look with me at verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Nebuchadnezzar decided that he wanted Jerusalem, he wanted Judah, where God's people lived. So he sent his army, they camped out by the city, and they besieged it waiting for them to surrender. They starved them into submission, if you like. And Neb's army, they kill plenty of the people, as we saw in Chronicles. And they grab all the riches of the country. In Neb's army, they take all the gold and the bronze and the silver from the palace of Jehoiakim. And not only that, in verse 2, they go into the very temple of God and they take the treasures out of God's temple and they carry them all off back to Babylon. And Neb is sending a massive message to the Israelites, to God's people. He's saying, your king, he's a nobody. Your God, he can't touch me. And this isn't just any God, is it? Uh, the God of the Bible is the one who says he created the whole world. He's the God who had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. And Neb says, he's got nothing on me. He's got nothing on me. I'm the king, I'm the boss, I'm the big daddy. Your God is a no one and your king is gone. It's just like our world, isn't it? God's people systematically killed. Tyrants like Neb ruling countries all around the world, aren't they? Doing as they please with people's lives and possessions. And God does, well, nothing, it seems. Has he lost his power? Can Daniel and his friends trust him? Can we trust him? It seems for all the world that Neb is in charge, that he has the power, and Neb and his gods have won the day. And now Neb is is a clever one. He could have killed all of God's people, but he's too clever for that. And what he does is he spares some, so he can train them up and send them back to look after the country. A very wise move. And the few he spared are Daniel and his friends. They're the ones we're going to focus on over the next few weeks. 
And what happens is the Babylonification of Daniel and his friends. I don't know if that's a real word, but we're going to stick with that for the time being. Um, the Babylonification of Daniel and his friends. And because he's going to try and indoctrinate them with Babylonian culture. Uh, look who wants to set himself up here as the source of knowledge, verse 4, second half. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. And they were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. And Neb thinks, well, I'm in charge, I'm the boss, I'm the big daddy, and I'm going to teach you about life. And so he gets his new pets, Daniel and his friends, and he trains them up in the Babylonian way of things. If Neb has got rid of God, then they need to have a new king who they submit to. The Babylonification of Daniel and his friends seeks to change who they worship. So they forget about this God who Neb has done away with and concentrate on Neb and his gods. He changes their names, giving them names that after his gods. He's saying to them, look, your God and your culture is gone. You need a new one. You need me. He's saying, I'm the source of knowledge. I'm the one with the power. Bow down and worship me. And it's not only that, though. He, he seems to think he's the provider of nourishment, a kind of provider, a great provider of life itself. Uh, verse 5, the king is assigning them a daily amount of food and wine from his table. Neb here is acting like God, isn't he? He's setting himself up in complete opposition to the God who many of us here claim to believe in. It appears that he's in charge, and he's so powerful that he seems to hold life and death in his hands. They're petrified of him, his people. Just look at verse 10. The official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Neb doesn't seem just to have the power of life and death over God's people back in their country, but even in his own land, he'll happily kill his own people. In fact, he seems to have a little penchant for killing his own people, we'll see in the coming chapters, whether it's chopping them up into tiny little pieces or throwing them into the flames. He loves it. Life and death seem to be in his hands. And yet, appearances can be deceptive, can't they? The world Daniel lived in seems just like ours. It appears that God is not in charge. Neb here has the appearance of the one of power, the one of knowledge, the great provider of food, and life and death itself. Back in the 90s, um, I lived through that generation. Uh, one of the things that became all the rage at the time when I was at school, on a wet Sunday, on a wet kind of school day, what you do is you go into the library and you obviously try and get the Where's Wally book because that was the first one you wanted to get. But if you couldn't get the Where's Wally book, the second option was always the magic eye. Um, has anyone, anyone ever done a magic eye? A few people have heard of it. Um, this is, a, this is a front cover of a New York bestseller version of The Magic Eye. It says, a new way of looking at the world. And basically, what you were supposed to do with magic eyes were, they were kind of pictures a little bit like this, which just seemed kind of a haze of odd colours. And what you were supposed to do is you were supposed to stare at them until you went cross-eyed, and then kind of pull it away from your face, and then the real picture would jump out at you. That was the way it was supposed to work. And so you'd just sort of be in the library at lunchtime, and everyone would have a book right up to their face, kind of like this looking like they were really reading hard, but it was just a picture. And the point was, um, I, would, I would try and sort of do it. I'd put it really close to my face, look straight at it, 
and I could never see the picture that was behind it. So what I would do is I'd listen to my friends and whenever they said what they could see, I just pretended I'd seen it. Uh, but the thing with Magic Eye was all about trying to see into reality, beyond the appearance and into reality, a new way of looking at the world. And I wonder whether for many of us here that we are stuck with appearances, just like I am with those pictures. I'm so tempted to get stuck on just the way the world appears. And we can't see beyond the pain of our world. And so we kind of think, well, well, God's given up. He's left the building. I'm going to have to do the best we can. And I guess for some of us, that's because of personal pains, isn't it? We're stuck with a world where God has lost control. Maybe it's been the misery of a severe illness. That's meant you've lost your independence or you've seen a relative or friend sort of shrivel away. And it's just so easy to give up on God, isn't it? And think, well, how could he let this happen? And then even in this last month, we, we read um, through the Barnabas Trust and other organisations, it talks about 12 Christians were killed in Egypt in the last month. 12 Christians were killed in Nigeria in the last month. And many thousands more had their homes burnt to the ground in the last month. And it can make us just sort of give up on God and just stick with appearances and hope for the best. And maybe it's been the death of a relative or friend and it's crushed your belief in a God who's really in control. These things kind of torment us, don't they? And they lead us to never see reality. But if the world is just the way it appears, then there can be no hope. There never will be any change. Evil will always prevail. And things will only get worse if God is not in control. See, if God really has sort of given up and left the building, then Daniel and his friends should give up on God and so should we. But before we throw God out, we need to look through the magic eye, as it were, and see reality. We need to see the reality that underpins the whole book of Daniel. We need to see the reality that underpins our whole world and indeed our whole lives. And Daniel is going to again and again and again show us reality so that we might trust in the God who is there, who is in control and who is good. So let's look through Daniel 1 again. Uh, We've seen the appearance But let's gaze into reality. Just look with me at verse 2. Who's got the power? And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. The Lord. What Neb what the Babylonians, what God's people, what Daniel, what we must realise is that God is in control. Completely in control, even over stuff that seems awful. God is the real king. God is the real boss. God is the big daddy. Anything that Nebuchadnezzar's done is because God has allowed him to do it. And anything that Neb has or now owns is because God has given it to him. God is the one with the power. Even his people being carried off to Babylon has been no mistake. God told them this would happen because they kept rejecting him again and again and again. 
He promised them this would happen, and because he is a faithful God, faithful to his word, it happens. God gave his people to Neb. Daniel knew this, which is why he kept trusting. Even though his life must have been awful, looking back on all his friends and family, many of them dead, he kept trusting God because he knew he was sovereign and he was in control. That he ultimately was the one with the power. Just look at verse 9. It's not just in the massive scale that God is powerful. Look at verse 9. Now God had caused the official to show favour and sympathy to Daniel. When Daniel boldly makes a stand and he says he won't eat from the king's table, we expect the official to say, don't be stupid. I mean, who is Daniel to ask anything? He's a slave, essentially, from another country. And yet God, powerfully, in an individual's life, causes him to allow Daniel and his friends to eat vegetables instead. God is in control here, isn't he? God's the real king. That's how powerful he is. And what about this area of the provision of food? Look at verse 15. At the end of the ten days, they, that's Daniel and his friends, looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. Neb set himself up as the great provider of everything. And yet God takes rubbish vegetables and makes these people better nourished. And recently, my brother um, got married. Um, She's a lovely girl called Jenny, but to my dismay, she's a vegetarian. Now, she's a lovely, lovely girl, but I would say she's kind of classical looking. um, Classically vegetarian. And that's exactly what's going through the official's mind, isn't it? Um, he thinks that, Neb and his, um, that Daniel and his friends are going to look like classic vegetarians. He says, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than any of the other young men of your age? But God miraculously, verse 15, at the end of ten days they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. It's a miracle. God is the great provider of nourishment, isn't he? God is the real king. He's the one providing the nourishment here. And what about knowledge? Neb was to Babylonify them. Verse 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. Neb thinks he's the great teacher of wisdom and learning. Yet it's the God who gives it to them. He gives it to them. He's the great provider we must understand that appearances can be deceptive. As we look at the world around us, we must see beyond appearances and into reality. God is in charge, even if it doesn't look like it. And a lot of the time, it doesn't look like it, does it? But we must trust him. He's the source of all good things. He's the great provider. And to think that God isn't in control means we're not viewing the world in reality. We're stuck with a myth. Um, Neb seemed to hold life and death in his hand as well, didn't he? But look at verse 21. A great place uh, the chapter finishes. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Who's gone? Neb. Neb is dead. He's not there anymore. Like all pretenders to God's throne, they can't compete. Neb could never be an eternal provider. Neb could never be eternally the one who gave knowledge, the one who eternally held life and death in his hands, because he was going to die himself. And we'll see more of this in the coming weeks, but all oppressive regimes will end. 
See, we live in a world where there are many enemies, a world where it appears that God has no influence, yet Daniel wants us to see reality. The reality is that God is in control. He knows what's happening. He's intimately involved in each individual's lives and in all of history itself. And yet even this is perhaps a bit scary. You see, if kind of God had left the building and Neb was just the one who was in charge and it was people like that who ruled the world, well, then we kind of know where we stood, wouldn't we? Because if, if Neb's in charge, then what do I expect? Bad all the time. But if God's in charge, what do I expect? I expect good all the time. Our cry is not just, how could you let this happen, God, but why? Why would you let these things happen to your people? Why would you let these things happen to me? Knowing God is in control is perhaps not quite enough. We must know what he's like. We must know that he is good. Daniel knew that God was in control and Daniel knew God's character as well. Which is why he kept trusting him. Trusting him again and again as we'll see to put his life on the line. It's not just that he knew that God was in control, that he knew that God was good. And so as we close, let's come back to our first question. Who's in charge? And so turn with me to the end of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, on page 892. Daniel 7, and we're going to look at verse 13 and 14. Let's see reality together. It says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. We get to the end of a chapter like Daniel 1. We realise we need a king who is completely in charge, who is a wonderful provider of all things, who is the source of life itself. And we get to Daniel chapter 7 and we see we have such a king. The son of man. Jesus uses that phrase about himself the most. In the New Testament, Jesus is the Son of Man. He is the one who is ruling the nations. He is the one who has all power. He is a kingdom that will never be destroyed. We must trust him, despite appearances that may deceive us. Jesus is the king of the universe, the provider of all things, the source of life itself. He is ruling the universe even as we we hear right now, sustaining it all. But what's he like? What's he like? Well, my favourite verse in the Bible is Mark 10, 45. It says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man, the great ruler of the universe, came down to earth to serve by dying for us on a cross. That's who's in charge. That's who's ruling the nations. That's who holds our very lives in his hands. 
none other than the one who died for us on a cross, that we might be in his kingdom that goes on forever. If Daniel can trust God, then how much more can we? Because we know so much more than Daniel did. There are so many unanswered questions we have, but we must cling to reality and the realities that we know. Jesus is ruling the nations and Jesus died on a cross for me so that I could be in his kingdom forever. One day, all the world will see this reality. One day, Jesus will establish his kingdom and it will never be spoiled. Not by anyone like Neb, no dictator, no death, no illness, no pain. However hard life gets, and there will be moments for each of us that will feel almost unbearable, we must hold tight to reality. Hold tight to the Son of Man who holds all things in his hands. Trust him enough to live for him. Today. This week. Hold on to that reality. Why don't I pray that we would do that now as we close?